I have a question for you this morning. If you were like me, and you grew up here in the Bahamas, you at some point watched WCW wrestling on Saturday mornings. I think it was like 12 or one o'clock. Anybody watch wrestling, even casually at some point throughout the years? If you just indicate for me by raising your hand. Good, I see a lot of wrestling fans. Wrestling, I'm sorry, wrestling. Well, if you've watched wrestling, you know that there are two types of wrestlers. Faces and heels. The faces are the good guys. They're the ones that we pull for. Now, sometimes faces can become heels, but typically a face remains a face throughout their uh, tenure and whatever promotion they were in. So I think a Sting and Hulk Hogan were mostly faces. Uh, Ric Flair, the nature boy, was typically a heel. Well, I'm not sure if y'all are still watching wrestling, but today in WWE there is a man named Roman Reigns. He is a very popular heel, and he goes around calling himself the tribal chief, the head of the table. And whatever city he goes to, he says the same thing all the time. So if he came here to Nassau, he would say, Nassau, acknowledge me. And then everybody would scream or cheer for him or boo him. But Roman Reigns is a heel, and that's a lot of times how non-Christians view our God, as if he's a heel, just seeking the acknowledgement of himself because he's vain and narcissistic. But that couldn't be further from the truth. So as you turn in your Bibles to our passage this morning, Genesis chapter 22, I have a prologue for you that may sound somewhat familiar. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around in Gerar and Beersheba. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Abraham, whom when he was called, faithfully obeyed and set out towards the place which he was going to receive as an inheritance, even, didn't, even though he did not know where he was going? Look, even now he lives as a foreigner in the promised land, living in tents. Satan scoffed. <laughs> Doesn't Abraham fear you for nothing? Haven't you bound yourself in a covenant relationship with him, promising him the land of Canaan, a number of descendants that rivals the stars? You've even blessed him with livestock, servants, silver and gold, all on the backs of Pharaoh and Abimelech, despite his cowardice on both occasions concerning his wife, Sarah. But stretch out your hand and threaten Isaac, and Abraham, your servant, will curse you to your face. Chapter 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will show you. Now it's important to state at the outset that we need to have a bird's eye view of this chapter. This is a test. We know it's a test. Abraham doesn't know that. It's designed to, to shine a light on the authenticity of a quality by going through an experience. And we all know that authenticity is very important. I work in the pharmaceutical industry and we sell medicine. And if you were sick and you went to the pharmacy and you were to be prescribed a counterfeit drug, you know the damage that that could possibly cause you either a further ailment or sickness or even death. 
Authenticity is important. But to pick a less jarring example, uh, how many of you ladies have a diamond in your wedding band or re wedding ring? Don't be shame, it's just a diamond, that's good. All right, the person that ensures that you have a diamond in your ring and not cubic zirconia is called a gemologist. A gemologist studies and cuts and even they value precious stones. They identify gems by its specific properties, such as its color and quality. Therefore, they're able to distinguish between one gemstone and another. Well, in this narrative, God is the gemologist. He's the one doing the cutting to Abraham. And he's examining the quality, the authenticity, the genuineness of Abraham's faith. That is what is on trial here. However, God is not doing this to learn something about Abraham. He's God. He knows everything. But what he's doing is he's testing him to reveal the purity of Abraham's faith and thus proving its strength or vitality despite this rather obscene command. Look at how the test begins in verse one. Abraham, that's the name that God himself gave him, which means father or chief of a multitude. Abraham's response, here I am. The Hebrew here indicates the readiness of the person to listen or even to obey. It would be like saying, I'm all ears. You have my undivided attention. Then God says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now the manner of death which Isaac is called to die is not insignificant. God is not simply saying, got your kid, or slit his throat, or push him off a cliff. He said, offer him as a burnt offering. Now to the first hearers of this story, the ancient Israelites, this would have been a travesty. As they were going into the promised land in Deuteronomy 18, God specifically told them not to engage in the practices of the surrounding nations. The surrounding nations would offer their sons and their daughters in the fire. So to the Israelites, the burnt offering was a gift that, was, that when done as God prescribed, was a pleasing aroma to him, or a sweet-smelling savor, some of your texts may say. However, it was never a person. It was always an animal. To be specific, an unblemished male. From the herd, for example, a bull. Or if it was from the flock, it was a sheep or a goat. But it was always a male. And it's the first offering in the book of Leviticus. It was the one that was most frequently observed by the nation of Israel. It was done morning and evening, weekly, on the Sabbath day, monthly, and even on special feast and holy days. Here's how it was done. If presenting an animal from the herd, like a bull, the offerer would identify himself with the animal by placing his hand on its head so that it can be accepted on his behalf as an atonement for him, thus wiping away any impurity that may impede his fellowship with holy God. The offerer, not the priest, would then slaughter the bull. By that, the offerer was saying that he was giving back to God the very life that God gave him. It would be his reasonable service of worship. Finally, the offerer would then skin the animal, cut it up, and then the entrails and the legs would be washed. And then the priest would gather all the parts of the animal and offer a burnt offering to God on the worshiper's behalf. So the offering expressed the worshiper's complete consecration of themselves to God to make an atonement for the offerer. We see this in the book of Job in chapter one. It says that it was Job's regular practice whenever his children uh, had a feast, 
he would send for his children and then he would say to them, uh, I'm gonna consecrate you before the Lord and he would offer a burnt offering on their behalf to God in the event that they had sinned or cursed God. That's how seriously Job took worshiping to God even on behalf of his children. So Abraham would have understood the dual purpose of the burnt offering as picturing the removal of any impurity that would act as a barrier to his fellowship with God so as that he can give himself entirely, his whole self, all that he was, all that he hoped for, all his dreams, he was giving all of that to God without reservation. However, instead of this coming from the abundance of his livestock, God was demanding this from the scarcity of his loins. Think about that. God was exacting this offering in the person of his son, Isaac. His son, meaning the the builder of the family name, his only son, not only in the sense of singular, but only in the sense of it being his irreplaceable, special, unique, most dear, the one through whom all the promises of God were supposed to come through, the one whom he loves. This is even the first time that love is mentioned in the Bible, the very first time. It's not even between God and man or a husband and a wife, but a father's love for his son. God is acknowledging that love. I remember in 2013, there was a shooting in the US and Barack Obama uh, got up and he said that the joys and anxiety of being a parent is very much like having your heart outside of your body. If there's any truth to that, I'm sure Abraham felt that. Isaac would have been his very heart. And here's what God is asking of him. So Abraham, like a witness on a stand, is being called to surface or to bring to light the total consecration of himself to God, to his care and provision, without any reservation. But to illustrate that, Abraham is not swearing on a Bible or firming in a courtroom with his mouth. He's doing this with this most striking offering, his precious son. What do you think crossed Abraham's mind? What would have crossed yours? Did I do something wrong? Did God change his mind? And maybe after he processed it, do I love my son more than I revere God? Note Abraham's immediate response in verse three. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Now, Abraham was living in Beersheba at the time. The distance from Beersheba to Moriah was about 45 miles. That's about the length of New Providence twice, a little more than that. So for three of these men, this is a 45-mile journey in a little over two days. But for Abraham, He is traveling decades upon decades upon decades of his walk with God. And he's traveling from the place where God first called him, Ur of the Chaldees and out of Haran, all the way to Egypt when he was in a famine, and now he's heading to Moriah. So for three of them, this is just almost like a weekend trip. But for Abraham, he has to think about all of the promises that God had ever made to him, every encounter that he's had with him. Any woman here that is entertain the thought of marrying your, your husband or any father or mother that has been asked to uh, have your daughter's hand in marriage, what you end up doing is you weigh the integrity of, uh, or character of that person. And if you think that that person lacks integrity, I'm sorry for that pseudo, but there's not gonna be a marriage. 
If you're a lady, you're not marrying any guy that you think doesn't have integrity. Or if you're a father or a mother, you are not going to give your blessing for your child to marry someone you don't think has integrity. Abraham is in the same predicament. The integrity of God's character is being weighed on the scale here. Don't miss that. God's character is being weighed and Isaac's life is being weighed against that. Don't miss that, that's key. So think about Abraham's experience with God so far. God led him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and called him when he lived in Haran. God called him to leave his country, yet promised him a great nation. To leave his relatives, but God promised to bless him and to make his name great and to bless those who blessed him and to curse those who cursed him. God called him to leave his father's house, but promised to establish Abraham's house and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through that house. Abraham was 75 years old at the time. When he got to Shechem, Abraham appeared, God appeared and reiterated the promise again to Abraham that the land would be his. But despite that, as soon as there was a famine, Abraham went into Egypt and in fear of his own life, he schemed with his wife. Do you remember what he said? He said, you were so fine that when we get to Egypt, they're going to kill me and they're gonna take you. Please tell them you're my sister, which is half true. She was a sister, but she was also his wife. And they pulled it off twice. Abraham did this to Pharaoh and Abimelech, and he got livestock and servants as a result. So he profited from his lie. God actually had to intervene on both occasions to restore Sarah to Abraham, do you remember? When Abraham and Lot separated from each other, Abraham settled in Canaan, and Lot settled in the valley of the Jordan. God told Abraham, look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Everything that your eyes touch, I will give to you and your descendants forever. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. Then when Lot was kidnapped and Abraham led 318 men in a Delta Force style militia raid to, to get him back, God delivered his enemies into his hands. And shortly after that, the Lord came to him in a vision and said, not to be afraid, I am a shield to you. Your reward will be great. Your servant Eliezer will not be your heir, but an heir will come from your own body. God then reiterates again the land promised to Abraham, and he does something unbelievable. The Lord bound himself in a covenant with Abraham, and he used the smoking oven and a flaming torch to pass through the cut pieces of the animals as a picture of his faithfulness to his word to Abraham. Talk about meeting someone at their, their needs. God didn't have to do that. He could just say, Abraham, I got you, but to, to picture it to Abraham in a way that he could understand, he did that himself. At 99 years old, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, and he changed Sarai's name to Sarah. And then he reiterates the promise again. And this time he says that the two of them will have a son named Isaac. God then promises to establish his covenant with Isaac and not with Ishmael. All of these events had to be coursing through the mind of Abraham. As you'll note in, in the passage so far, there's no conversation on those first two days of the journey. And that's, I think, intentional. It's meant to make you feel the suspense. Abraham is thinking about all of these promises of God and everything that he has done with him. Verse five, the first time a conversation is noted. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Here is the first mention of the word worship in the Bible. It means to prostrate oneself or to bow down. 
Now we may miss this in our English Bibles, but it's more clear in Hebrew as well as the Septuagint. What Abraham is saying is, we are going to worship. That, that's pretty clear, that's definitive, it's going to happen, this is what we are going to do. However, when Abraham says, return to you, that is said in a sense of it being a strong desire or a hope. It's a mood of probability, which implies there's some uncertainty regarding the reality of the action taking place. So from Abraham's point of view, it would be like him saying, we are going to worship, and I hope that we return to you. So it's possible that even at this point, Abraham isn't sure that Isaac is coming back. He still doesn't know that this is a test. Verse six, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son, or you have my undivided attention. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now what stands out to me about this conversation is striking. Abraham had to be instructing his son on the proper way of worshiping God. That was clear to Isaac. Isaac saw that his dad had the fire and the knife. Isaac himself is carrying the wood, but he knows that there is no lamb for the burnt offering. Parents, this should be a, a reminder to us that our children are watching how we worship the Lord, how we regard worshiping him. Someone had preached this passage, maybe from here before, but I wrote a note in my Bible describing worship in this way. A simple way to think of worship is to think of God's work and to act accordingly. To think of God's worth and to act accordingly. How do we think of God's worth? And how do we act? Whatever it is, our children are watching that. They know if it's authentic, if we're telling the truth. But here's Isaac. He is clear on the manner in which God is to be approached in worship concerning the burnt offering. And this ties back to Genesis 18. After Abraham had met with God and the two angels at the tent. Abraham is walking with God and here's a man engaged in a ethical conversation with the judge of all the earth. Think about that. Chapter 18, verse 17, God says to him, shall I withhold from Abraham what I'm about to do? For I have chosen Abraham so that he would teach his children and his children's children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Then the Lord will give to Abraham what he had promised him. Wow. So the reason that God chose Abraham was not to arbitrarily bless him with land and children and, and descendants, but it was so that he can teach his offspring, this is how we are to worship God. This is how we are to observe or keep God's way by doing what is right and just. So like a witness, under oath to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. God himself is under oath and he is purporting to be righteous. Don't miss how profound that is. Yes, God is testing the quality of Abraham's faith. He's looking for something. But from Abraham's point of view, he himself is the jury and he has to, to look at God and he's evaluating everything that God has ever said to him and everything that God has ever done to see if it is consistent with, with, with who God said that he is. This is an estimation of the righteousness of holy God. Can God be trusted to keep his word? The way that Abraham answers his question, 
tells us what he thinks about God, and that informs whether or not that he will obey him. We're in the same position as Abraham when we have trials. We have to come to a verdict on who God is. It's the same question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? So how do you answer that question? Who is God? Now, not just in the good times, but the tough times, the challenging times. Can he be trusted? Is he faithful to his word? The way you answer those questions validates your estimation of God's worth, and it informs how you worship him. Daddy, do you trust God? That is the question that Isaac is unwittingly asking Abraham. And Abraham answers with these timeless words, foreshadowing a reality that he couldn't possibly understand. Verse eight, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Literally, God will see to it that an acceptable offering will be provided, my son. Theologically, he's answering, God will make provision for the fulfillment of his word. God will see to it that he keeps his promise. The words first penned by John Newton in his song, Amazing Grace, comes to mind, and that had to be etched in Abraham's mind. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. God had promised a good seed to Abraham. And now, despite that looking like it's in jeopardy, Abraham is indicating that he is still counting God's word as true. Do we do that when we face adversity? Do we really believe that God is true? That he's faithful to his word? What Abraham is saying is that there's a substance to the character of God, a bedrock for his faith to be built upon. Verse nine. Then, came, then they came to the place in which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. If this was a legal trial or a court proceeding, the deliberations of Abraham's mind has just been read. The verdict is in on God. God is standing now as the verdict is read. Abraham's obedience in walking up that mountain, building the altar, binding his son, stretching out his hand to kill his own son, is his public and unequivocal exoneration of the righteous character of God. He's saying that God is indeed truthful. He has integrity. Hebrews confirms, the book of Hebrews confirms that Abraham considered that God was able to raise up people from the dead. So because Abraham considered that the one who had promised him a son would be faithful to him, Abraham acted. He counted God as trustworthy. Again, to you. Abraham's actions cries, yes, God will indeed be faithful to his word. That is amazing faith. Like love, faith is often caricatured in society. I recently had this conversation with a friend at work about faith. It went something like this. Drew, I don't say that I have faith anymore. 
Because faith means that there is doubt. I say I know the Father, but I don't have faith in him. Think about that. Faith doesn't necessarily indicate the presence of doubt, but it does indicate that there is a lack of absolute knowledge. God does not have faith. He knows everything. Another misnomer is that faith is blind. But when we talk about faith, we're not talking about some blind or baseless, wishful feeling. No, rather, faith is confidence in the testimony of another person. It's relying on the testimony of another person based on evidence, not absolute knowledge, to act consistently with what they've declared or revealed. That is what faith is. And again, if this were a courtroom, the verdict has been read for Abraham. And the angel of the Lord shout, Abraham, Abraham, do not touch the lad. Don't harm him. For now I know that you fear me, since you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me, is God's public and unequivocal vindication of the faith of Abraham. It is the divine affirmation that Abraham passed the test. If he got a grade, F. He feared God, meaning that abiding in Abraham was a reverence for the character of God that trusted in his word and promises. And that produced within him a wholesome dread of displeasing God. Another way to look at it is if Abraham were put on trial for having faith, he just got convicted. Now, if you were put on trial for having faith, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Or would the charges be dropped? Would they look at me and say, Drew, he's all mouth. Nothing to back it up. It's not so with Abraham. He put his son where his mouth is. This affirmation of Abraham's faith surely was a witness to Isaac, the Israelites, and for us who by faith in Christ are children of Abraham, of the depth and the quality of the faith that we should aspire to have. And we are always to remember that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance produces maturity and completeness. But our God is good. He doesn't just end there. He goes the distance. He provides, and he saw to the provision of an appropriate animal to be used for the burnt offering. Verse 13, then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham had no clue to the extent of the provision that God would provide. This incident occurred on one of the mountains of Moriah. It's a mountain range. Some scholars debate whether this is the specific mountain that the temple was built on. Some think that it was, others say no. But as remarkable as the story is, more than 2,000 years later, when the fullness of time had come, we see another father, God the Father, who sent his son, and led his own son, his only begotten son, the son whom he loved, with whom he was well pleased. He led him up one of the mountains of Moriah as the spotless lamb of God, not as a victim, but the one to whom the burnt offering pointed to. Jesus completely consecrated himself to God as an atonement for us. That is the magnanimous grace of our God in the provision of Jesus Christ. Don't ever take that for granted. Look at God's reward, verse 15. 
Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. I'll just read that part again. Because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. This is the second time that God says it this way. If you remember in the beginning, God says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. But now he says, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. He ends it there. It's as if to say that Abraham's love for his son does not exceed his love for God. So Abraham's love for God is also tested with this trial. Verse 17 and 18. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand in which is on the seashores. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. When God says that he will do these certain things because Abraham obeyed, God is saying that the covenant really will be fulfilled according to God's prior commitments because Abraham demonstrated the reality of his faith. Ladies and gentlemen, are we going to trust God or not? The enemy of our souls would love nothing more for our guttural reaction to trials would be that doubt would well up in our hearts like, like vomit and that we would eject our faith. The manner in which we respond to trials publicly and unequivocally vindicates God as trustworthy or it implicates him as untrustworthy. Many of us may be quick to say that we would die for our faith. That's good. But would we live in it? Would we live in faith and walk in faith? Dr. John Lennox, mathematician and Christian apologist, says that the biggest pressure in our society is to do everything to undermine our confidence in God and his word. The moment that we begin to have our confidence in God and his word undermined is the step towards the privatization or selling off of our faith and losing the cutting edge of our witness. There's no need for our confidence in God and his word to be eroded because God is indeed faithful. We have seen today that God will indeed provide or he will see to it. He provided for Abraham. He provided for the Exodus Israelites to the point that at the point that Abraham, I mean Moses is writing this, it says on the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided. That is what it was called at that point. Finally, God is provided in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate and complete picture of the provision of God for all the families of the earth. So whenever you go through a trial, we can think of Abraham as a good example of someone to follow. But we can also remember the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20. It reads, For as many as are the promises of God, in him, meaning in Christ, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. I'll just try to unpack it for you. The first part of it, for as many as are the promises of God, God has made a lot of promises. Someone ventured to count it and told me via Google that this is over 7,800 promises that God has made to people. From one of the first promises in Genesis 3.15 to the serpent, that he was going to send someone to crush the serpent's head, to Revelation 22, Jesus saying that he was coming quickly. Over 7,000 promises God has made. In Christ, they are yes. That part is simple enough. Those promises are sure. They are true. Therefore, because those promises are yes, therefore it is through him, through Christ, 
He is our amen. The word amen is a, almost a universal word. It's identical to the Hebrew word for believe, which is aman, or faithful. It means sure or truly. So it came to mean an expression of absolute trust and confidence. So, so when we say amen at the end of the prayer, we're saying that we fully believe what we've just said, absolute trust and confidence. And this text says that Jesus is our amen to the glory of God. So we are fully trusting the work of Jesus Christ. Let's live like that. There's a world out there that doesn't know him. People you and I know need the Lord. We need the Lord. But sometimes we act as if we've trusted Christ for salvation, but the rest of our Christian lives, we have to walk it out ourselves. That couldn't be further from the truth. God provided for Christ in salvation, and he provides for us in our sanctification. Let's trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story about Abraham and his, his faith in you. And the, the picture that it gives to us that even though there may be times in life where we don't trust you as we should, that you are indeed faithful to us. God, help us to feel confident and to rely on the truth of that and to live as so so that we can be a good witness for you to a dying world. God, I ask that you would bless all the hearers of the message today. Let it not just stay here, but marinate in our thoughts and transform our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.